the BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. This is episode two for September 2022, read by Terry Bennett and Jenny Devitt. In this episode, Patricia Miller shares her Dorset Island discs. Ken Huggins bemoans the state of the water industry in the UK. Labour's Pat Osborne says that the new Green Deal is already planned. Mike Chapman extols the virtues of community fridges. The tale of a rather outrageous 18th century vicar. And farmer Martin Green is said to be the most professional of amateur archaeologists. And news of Lorraine Gibson's forthcoming book detailing the life of Robert Baden-Powell. But first... The NHS. The NHS has lost its way. Patricia Miller shares her Dorset Island discs. Having worked for the NHS for more than 30 years, Bolton-born Patricia was appointed as CEO of Dorset Health. She was named as one of the 25 rising stars of the NHS in 2013 and is one of only a few ethnic minority CEOs in the NHS provider sector. She was awarded an OBE in the Queen's Honours List in 2019. Patricia's mum was a midwife and her dad came over with his mum and sisters from Barbados in 1963, the last of the Windrush generation. After my A-levels, I went to the Caribbean for a couple of years to stay with my grandparents, says Patricia. When I came home, my mum was adamant I needed a job. She got me an admin role in the local hospital and I just worked up from there. I had a strong Christian upbringing. My dad and my grandmother were very religious, as is common for Caribbean families. Lots of my values were grounded in Christianity, and I think that probably influenced my career choice. I opted to go into public service because I was brought up with a strong principle of giving back. At 28, I was one of the NHS's youngest directors of information, management and technology, but I knew I didn't want to do that forever. So at 30, I took a career break to do a business degree and then I came back into the service in operational management. Being in a more patient-facing role is where my heart lay. I've never taken a job because I have a huge career aspiration to be a chief executive. It's just when the sphere of influence or control I've had has not been big enough for me to make a genuine difference to local communities, I've looked for the next job, which will give me more scope in decision-making. I was previously a hospital chief executive, but I've taken this role in the Dorset health system because I really believe that the NHS has lost its way. Using its power and influence and its ability to work with communities to drive down health inequalities is where its focus was when Bevan set it up. And we need to get back to that. We need to get communities to talk to us about what they really need. But also, we need to develop the principle of citizenship, where communities make the decisions about how public funding is spent. I'm responsible for working with other health and government organisations to make sure that we're not just giving value for money, but also driving down health inequality. It's so much broader than health services. It's understanding what we can do to address some of the wider determinants that impact on an individual's health. Only 20% of anyone's health and well-being is dictated by anything that a health organisation can do. The other 80% is about the quality of housing you live in, the place where you live, whether it's a healthy environment, what type of education is available, the type of employment you've got, and your social mobility. 
We need to understand the health input required, but also appreciate the other 80%. We're also working with the health providers to make sure they're giving the best service they can, and if they're not, then giving them the support to do that. It keeps me busy. We're responsible for the entire geographical county, so I'm caring for about 900,000 residents. We work closely with both BCP and Dorset councils, both of Dorset's hospitals, Dorset Healthcare, and with the voluntary sector. We're currently looking at how we can bring the private sector into these conversations too. When we look at what it costs to live in Dorset, we know that we as employers are actually contributing to health inequalities. At the lowest levels, we aren't paying high enough wages for it to be affordable to live. Not in luxury, just a basic life. And we know that if you live in the most deprived areas in England, such as in Weymouth and Portland, who are high on the deprivation scale, while your deprivation is real, you are not as deprived as someone who lives within a pocket of deprivation in a fairly affluent community because the infrastructure is simply not there to support you out of poverty. It took Wigan 10 years to successfully implement a citizenship model. But we haven't got 10 years with the cost of living. My job is to work out how we move some things forward at a much faster pace. Right now, we have the opportunity to use this burning platform to do something different very quickly. We just need to work out what we do first. And so to Patricia's eight music choices, along with how and why they stuck in her life. Number one, Island in the Sun by the Merry Men. Ah, this is my childhood. The Merry Men was a band that originated from Barbados, and theirs is some of the first music that my parents played at home when I was a small child. Island in the Sun is actually written about Barbados being such a beautiful island. Secondly, Free by Denise Williams. We had a dichotomy in my grandma's house when I was small. My dad worked in textiles and mum was a midwife, so they used to work shifts. Me and my brother used to go to my grandmother's house every evening after school and I used to stay there at weekends. On Thursday night, Top of the Pops would be on. My two aunties were in their late teens and we used to sit and rave over it together. But then on a Sunday, we weren't allowed to listen to any other music because my gran would have songs of praise on. I chose this one in particular because it was one of my favourite songs of the 70s. I grew up in the era. I love this music. And I also love a track where people can really sing. And Denise Williams can sing like a songbird. I still have this song in my iTunes and I play it all the time. The Craziest Showman, Hugh Jackman. I really, really love musical theatre. And I've introduced both my daughters to it. I think they love it almost as much as I do now. We've watched The Greatest Showman God knows how many times. We can't quite turn the volume down and say all the words yet, but we might get there. I just remember seeing this in the cinema and I was captivated within the first few seconds because of the beat of the first song. Every time I watch it, I'm anticipating and waiting for the beginning because I absolutely love that opening beat. It just draws you in. I love it. The Redemption Song, Bob Marley. As you can imagine, Bob Marley was a really popular artist for us to listen to at home and has continued to be. The reason I chose Redemption Song specifically is because when you grow up as a person of colour in the UK, you face the challenges of racism before you get into the normal everyday life challenges. Redemption Song is one of those uplifting tunes. It makes you think that actually some of your destiny is in your own hands. It can galvanise and motivate you out of a slump. 
It also talks about the past and issues around slavery. You need to know where you've come from to know where you're going. This song's just important in its messaging. Word Up by Cameo. This was the first concert I ever went to. I went with my best friend when we were 18. The lead singer of Cameo was famous for wearing black shiny leggings, think Olivia Newton-John in Greece, and a red codpiece. It was his USP. We were so excited to go to this concert, but a few days before, we were watching the tube when Cameo came on. They were awful. So for four days, we were thinking we were going to go to a really awful concert. But the morning we were setting off, Cameo were on the radio, apologising for their performance on the tube, and they explained their amplifiers weren't working. We were so relieved. Then we got to the concert and it was absolutely fantastic. The big thing I remember was that they come on at the beginning without any lights and all you could see was this red shiny codpiece dancing about on stage. But the concert was great. Testify, Sounds of Blackness. This song is a reflection of me being brought up in a Christian household. People quite often equate Christianity and gospel music with something that's really boring. But actually, one of the things Sounds of Blackness brings is a different way of doing it. Their songs are grounded in Christian values, but they're R&B dance tunes that happen to be gospel. They bring young people into those values because their music isn't boring or stifling. You Bring Me Joy by Anita Baker. I love this woman. I love her music. I love the fact that every time I watch her sing, it looks effortless. I really love this song in particular because it reminds me of my husband. We married in 2000 and my children but also because it's just one of those really feel-good songs. It can be applied to anything in your life that brings you joy. I just love it, and I think Anita Baker's incredible. And finally, Take That with Never Forget. When I was younger, and Take That were really famous, I hated them. But now I'm older, and they reformed, and their music has matured, I've come to really like them. In fact, I've been to see them live three times in the last few years. Twice, I dragged my husband along. He did admit they put on a really good show, technically. I've specifically chosen Never Forget for my track. I've seen the song differently since hearing it live. When I think about my life and my career, I have to remind myself quite often that, as a person of colour working in the NHS, I am not the norm. I'm the exception in terms of reaching such a senior role. This song means a lot to me. I need never to forget that. I can tend to assume that everyone else has been able to fight their way through the barriers to get where they want to be in their career, and that's not always the case. So mentoring and supporting and breaking down barriers for other people is really important to me. And if the waves were to wash all your records away, but you had time to save just one, which would it be? Redemption song. I think I could handle anything coming at me if I had that song to listen to. And the book you'd like to take with you to your island? Maybe I Don't Belong Here by David Harwood. A lot of what he talks about I can relate to in my own childhood, but also because it's important in a sense of what I think I'm trying to achieve professionally. His experiences of racism, living in this country as a man from Caribbean heritage, led to a psychotic breakdown, then having to recover and now being successful at what he does. There's something in the message about the way we treat people, the impact it has on them as human beings, emotionally and psychologically. It can change the direction of their life forever. What about your luxury item? Oh, a digital radio, because then I'd have music wherever I was. And if you have music, you can deal with anything, can't you? 
Politics, Small Government, Big Bills by North Dorset Green Party's Ken Huggins. The ideology that promotes light-touch government sounds appealing. It makes for simpler government, with a reduced role for the state, minimal bureaucracy, reduced public sector borrowing and reduced taxation. The claim is that industry, free from the restrictions of red tape, can get on unhindered with the business of supplying the market with what the people need. Bad businesses will fail, and only good businesses will succeed. Sounds good, but there is a fatal flaw, human greed. A good private company is generally considered to be one which primarily focuses on maximising the money made for its shareholders and management, putting profit before people and planet. Take the water industry in England, overseen by the government regulator Ofwat and the Environment Agency, which are both considered to be poorly resourced under light-touch government. The industry was privatised in 1989 by a Tory government under the pretext that the private sector would inject the cash needed to upgrade old Victorian sewers and fix leaky mains water pipes. That went well, didn't it? 30 years on, a 2020 report found that the businesses had been loaded with £48 billion of debt to help fund dividends of £57 billion, while customers' water bills increased 40% above the rate of inflation. In 2021, despite grossly polluted foul water being discharged uncontrolled into our rivers and seas for 2.7 million hours, water company executives received an average £100,000 bonus on top of their salaries. The water industry is not the only one raking in excessive profits. What we need is big, bold, honest government, with people and planet protected by appropriate regulations that are rigidly enforced by properly funded public authorities. The Green Party is calling for essential services like water and energy to be brought back into public ownership. Not easy, we know, but the plundering has to stop. The new Green Deal is already planned by Labour's Pat Osborne. August's article about Blandford Town Council's motion for the ocean already seems a lifetime ago. Within a few short weeks, that glimmer of hope was eclipsed by a tsunami of raw sewage engulfing our beaches, rivers and the marine habitats around our coastline. The root cause of this? Greedy water company bosses, prioritising shareholder profits and their own inflated paychecks over basic public health needs. It'll be lost on nobody that we're in deep sewage, with our other utilities too. Since 2010, under the Tories, energy prices have spiralled out of control. In September, bills will almost double, with the promise of even more increases to come. People across North Dorset, who already have nothing else to give, are being asked to cough up yet more so that a handful of shareholders can make even more profit. If that isn't bad enough, the same Tories who passed the laws which allowed the water companies to do so much harm are papering over their decisions to slash investment in energy efficiency and renewable energy from wind, waves, sun and tides, implying instead that environmental policies are to blame for energy hikes and that fracking and more North Sea gas and oil are the answer. What we really need is a plan that includes windfall taxes on the huge profits of energy companies, a plan to insulate homes to keep energy bills down, and to bring energy back into public ownership so that we're all in control of our future. Fortunately, such a plan exists, 
The legislation was written in February by a cross-party group of MPs and is ready to go. We can only live in hope that our new Prime Minister will deliver it. Until then, I'll hold my nose as water company bosses pump more sewage into the environment and cash into their pockets, but I won't hold my breath. Fridges, Fairs and Fewer Walls by the North Dorset Lib Dems, Mike Chapman. At the peak of Covid, we recognised the difficulties families were facing. We saw the successful rollout of community fridges in Poole. There was nothing similar operating at the time in North Dorset, so we decided to pave the way and set one up in Sturmitz de Newton. Community fridges have the double benefit of reducing food waste and stretching household budgets. Other schemes have since developed, including fridges in Shaftesbury and Blandford, and of course the Vale Pantry in Sturmitz de Newton. Two years on, we have decided to hand our community fridge over to the Emporium team, who I am sure will be able to stock it more effectively from local resources. The very best of luck to them with this and all their other initiatives. On another positive note, no one does a fair quite like Dorset, do they? In quick succession, we have the Gillingham and Shaftesbury Show, the Oak Fair, the Great Dorset Steam Fair and the Sturmitz to Newton Cheese Festival. It always makes me smile that the cheese festival was born out of a collective fury at the closure of the town's creamery and cheese factory. This was a very Dorset response, an attachment to all things rural, coupled with a blend of stubbornness and entrepreneurial flair. We found the GNS show especially good. It gave us the opportunity to ask people about their priorities and to listen to a wide range of thoughts and perspectives. Although the show, with all its attractions, served to lift most people's mood, there was no hiding from the underlying anxiety about life and the world at large. And now we have the winter of our discontent. We face a nasty enemy, multiple threats to our standard of living, a poor economic outlook and strikes and go slows every which way you look. We ought to be pulling together, but we are a million miles from that. Boris's legacy will be dominated by that failure. Despite his levelling up vocabulary, he has undoubtedly increased the polarisation of the nation. Blue wall, red wall, whatever colour wall, please can we just have fewer walls. Please would the new PM also address another noticeable polarisation, that between customer satisfaction and shareholder satisfaction. Across rail, energy, water, communications, the media and even the ports, a proper balance seems to be out of reach. Is this because the public, as customers, have so few real choices? Or is it due to a failure to regulate profits effectively? We need to find answers and properly invest in solutions before the roving eye of capitalism settles on the NHS and begins to espouse more and more salami slicing of its routine, less complex activity, engendering counterproductive competition that distracts doctors, nurses, technicians, support staff and managers alike from their real purpose. Local History Unpleasant Tales of Lyd Lynch's Hunting Country Clergyman by Roger Guttridge You won't find a country clergyman like him today, which is probably just as well, for the Reverend William Chafin was far too outrageous for the modern era. The one-time rector of Lidlinch was obsessed with hunting and has been called the epitome of the sporting parson of 18th century England. He was also a renowned eccentric who always dressed in old boots and greasy leather breeches and refused to change even when dining with the Prince of Wales. William's character owed much to his unusual upbringing. 
Born in 1733, he was the 11th and last child of George and Elizabeth Chafin, wealthy owners of Chettle House, now a Grade 1 listed building on Cranbourne Chase. Sadly, only three of William's ten siblings had survived infancy, a record that their father put down to the excessive tenderness bestowed upon them. Determined to improve William's chances, George had the newborn immediately baptised, then removed from his mother to be wet-nursed by the estate shepherd's wife. William himself later recalled, I remained in this cottage under the care of the good inhabitants until I was nearly five, without once sleeping in my father's house. As soon as I could crawl, I was carried by the shepherd to his sheepfold every morning, even in the very depth of winter. William was known for his robust constitution, and he put this too down to his upbringing. He was still riding to hounds at 80, and only suffered a decline in health after being struck by lightning while sitting at a window in 1817. Even then, he survived another year, eventually dying in 1818, aged 85. Chafin is also famous for his book Anecdotes and History of Cranbourne Chase, first published in the year of his death and which reflects his hunting obsession. According to his contemporary, Sir Archie McSarson, William hunted everything from the flea in the blanket to the elephant in the forest, but his chief sport was afforded by foxes, hares, rabbits and owls, said Sir Archie. Chafin's biggest fan was the novelist and poet Sir Walter Scott, who sent some handwritten notes about him to Lord Montague, which survive in a copy of Anecdotes in the Library at Bewley. Sir Walter reveals that William's first commencement as a sportsman was rather inauspicious. He shot an old woman, and then left his game where it dropped without staying to bag it. When a servant at Chettle House announced that a woman called Goody had been shot dead, there was a confession in the boy's looks which made his father exclaim, there sits the rascal that killed her. What the coroner's inquest decided is unknown, but Sir Walter reports that the boy's father confined him to a garret for a month on a diet of bread and water. The young William whiled away his time by trapping hungry sparrows, using bits of his bread as bait. In a separate letter to Lord Montague, Sir Walter describes how the young Chafin also shot an old cat, for which offence he served three months in the garret on bread and water, this time amusing himself by hunting rats. It's not clear when Chafin became rector of Lidlinch, but he was certainly in post by 1769 and probably continued until 1776 when he inherited the Chettle estate following the death of his brother, another George. Diarist Stephen Terry wrote that the entire Chettle household got sucked into Chafin's hunting, apart from the butler who superintended the garden. Terry added, the old cook supervised the cuisine in the kennel as well as in the kitchen and got the footman up in good time to do his part in the house before he was booted and spurred for the chase. For rabbit hunting, Chafin maintained a pack of miniature beagles, each a mere 12 to 14 inches high, which he carried in panniers on his horse. For owl hunting, his parishioners were the first pack, flushing out a distressed bird on a sunny day and pursuing it until it sought refuge in a bush, at which point the beagles would be released. Chafin's inheritance included the manors of Lidlinch, Folk and North Egerton. Tradition has it that he sold Egerton Hill near Bridport to his friend Isaac Gulliver, Dorset's leading smuggler, who planted fast-growing trees on the summit as a marker for contraband ships approaching the coast. 
The Most Professional of Amateur Archaeologists by Rupert Hardy, Chair of North Dorset CPRE. Martin Green may farm 260 acres of land organically on Cranbourne Chase, but he's best known for his extraordinary archaeological work there and for the impressive Down Farm Museum he set up behind the farm, which is full of his finds, flint tools and prehistoric artefacts from the Paleolithic to the Romano-British period. His family has been farming here since the 30s, and he started picking up flints as a child, his curiosity sparked by his father's interest. The Greens knew the area and that the farm had prehistoric remains, but their profusion was only unearthed by Martin, who started digging in 1976. His hero was General Augustus Pitt Rivers, the Victorian soldier, scientist and archaeologist, who excavated many sites on the Rushmore estate and elsewhere. His mentor was Richard Bradley, who became a professor of archaeology at Reading University. Although Martin was not formally trained, he worked closely with Professor Bradley in the late 1970s on the Pitt Rivers project, which re-examined the large and important Pitt Rivers collection of 26,000 archaeological and ethnographic objects to a new museum at Oxford University. There are a number of excavated and sensitively preserved prehistoric sites, including round pond barrows and henges, that's enclosures surrounded by ditches and banks, on the farm. One of the most extraordinary is the Neolithic Dorset Cursus, which crosses the farm. Overall, it runs for six miles, mostly westwards, but this was only fully realised in the 1950s. It's the longest in Britain, and Martin has only recently excavated part of it. Originally consisting of a pair of parallel banks, some of the cursus is still visible. It's assumed the cursus served a religious or ceremonial function related to its southwesterly orientation following astronomical alignments. From the eastern end, you can see the midwinter sun set behind the long barrow on the ridge of Gussage Down. A magical experience if you're lucky enough to get a sunny winter solstice. Martin believes the profusion of sites on his farm related to the location of the cursus here. But another factor may be the Ackling Dyke, a Roman road which also crosses the farm. Another remarkable site on the farm is the fir tree field shaft, which is estimated to be more than 25 metres deep, even though it's only been excavated to just 13 metres. The shaft was formed by natural processes due to water percolation from melting glaciers at the end of the Ice Age. Finds in the pit range from the Mesolithic to the Neolithic, covering the period from hunter-gathering to farming, and including bones of deer, aurochs, flint tools and pottery. Some of the deer clearly fell in. Aurochs were ancestors of modern cattle, domesticated by Neolithic people, but are long extinct. Many universities, including Cambridge and Reading, have been involved in the digs on the farm, with students receiving practical courses on excavation techniques and going on archaeological field trips run by Martin. In recognition of his work and knowledge, Martin was awarded an honorary doctorate of science by Reading University. In 2000, he wrote a book about archaeology and his farm, A Landscape Revealed, 10,000 Years on a Chalkland Farm, is its title, and it's a fascinating read. 
Professor Bradley said of it, Martin must be the most professional amateur archaeologist in Britain, but his work is so important that the term is simply not sufficient. His achievement is unique, as this book shows us. One recent development has been the construction of a Neolithic house at the Butzer Ancient Farm Museum in Hampshire, modelled on the one Martin excavated at Down Farm. Martin sees advantages in his joint roles as farmer and archaeologist, which enable him to distinguish what is genuine or not, such as crop marks. He believes strongly in protecting the environment, and he's in the process of introducing rare breed cattle, which will help establish more wildflowers in his fields. He sees technology as a major aid to archaeologists. Geophysics shows how the cursors functioned. Drones and 3D laser scanning, or LIDAR, are also very useful tools, through which more prehistoric sites are being discovered on Cranbourne Chase and elsewhere every year. Surprisingly, his favourite artefact is a flint knife found in Yorkshire, not Dorset, which you can see in his museum. Asked what conveys his life's work, he quotes the words of General Pitt Rivers, It was as if some unseen hand had guided me to be the owner of such a property. Dorset CPRE has organised several visits to Down Farm. Groups of six or more are welcome at his museum. Please contact Martin on mgreendownfarm at gmail.com. He can lead tours of the prehistoric sites on the farms too, which Rupert thoroughly recommends. Book Corner Baden-Powell, the Boy Scout who never wanted to grow up. Most people know him as the founder of the Boy Scouts. However, the astoundingly eccentric Robert Baden-Powell was a brilliant military strategist and hero of the Second Boer War, yet later became a pacifist who angered Mussolini and ended up on Hitler's death list. A conflicted character, he was a macho man who was obsessed with Peter Pan, he saw the play five times, and who was happy to don a frock and entertain troops as a drag artist. He was an elitist man of privilege, but one who gave the poorest children opportunities to discover the great outdoors. After delving deep into the world of Boy Scouts and their famous founder, journalist Lorraine Gibson, who lives near Brownsea Island, became intrigued by the island's role in the birth of the scouting movement. She was hooked. In the pandemic of 2020, she reported on a fight between scouts and anti-slavery protesters hell-bent on throwing Baden-Powell's statue off Pool Quay. Now, 90,000 mainly lockdown written words later, her first book, Robert Baden-Powell, A Biography, is published. It's available from 16th of September. She explains, The more I researched, the more I discovered the dichotomy between his two lives, as Baden-Powell called them. His difficult childhood really drew me in, a domineering and unaffectionate mother whom he loved even though she forced him into the army at 19, dashing his dreams of becoming an artist. My book considers a recently discovered telegraph that adds fuel to speculation over his relationship with a fellow soldier that endured for 30 years until, at the age of 55, he secretly married a 22-year-old woman. She adds... This is not so much a warts and all tale, but a what caused the warts tale. I leave the reader to make up their mind. 
Researching in the pandemic had many restrictions, but thanks to modern technology, Lorraine was able to interview Baden-Powell's granddaughter, who is still in the Scouts in her 80s, and his grandson, as well as his great-grandson, who lives in Nova Scotia. She said, I was blown away by the support I got for my fresh take on this man. I got access to his diaries and school records, and when lockdown lifted, I had the rare opportunity of seeing archived scouting material curated on Brown Sea Island. And how was writing her first book? The spare room became my writing turret. My computer was on at 4am, and sometimes I would sneak there during the night when an idea came to mind. I was paranoid about losing my work, so had backups on all manner of devices. The wall was covered in hundreds of post-it notes and a timeline. My husband and two daughters were very patient. I'd be watching YouTube videos about Baden-Powell while I was cooking and suddenly rush off to write something. There were a few almost burnt suppers that year. Potentially, there are more charred offerings in store for her family. Lorraine is already embarking on another book. She revealed exclusively to the BV... I'm moving from a man in shorts to a man in rhinestone cat suits. I'm a huge Elvis fan, and so was my dad. The title of my next book is Elvis, the King of Fashion. What Elvis wore is so culturally relevant. Ask someone how they imagine Elvis, and you can almost guess their age. White suits and capes, the Las Vegas 1970s. Black leather in the 60s, drainpipe jeans in the 50s. I'm really hoping to get to Memphis next year to do some real-life research. Robert Baden-Powell, a biography, is priced at £25 and will be available from the 16th of September. Well, that's it for episode two of the BV Magazine September podcast. Join us again for episode three. In the meantime, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And it's goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt.